Well, hey everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride. And friends, we made it. Normally, never mind. Okay, we made it. Let me tell you why we made it. Maybe you'll cheer. We made it to the end of the series. What is God like? Yeah. And uh, as many of you know, this series is all about unpacking something astonishing that Jesus said one day to his first followers. Uh, it was midway through a conversation in which they were asking him what God was like. Jesus looked at them and said this. He said, if you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. In, in other words, Jesus told his disciples, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know him. Like if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. If you've watched me, in a very real sense, you've watched him. And as we've noted all along, um, it's that reality that makes the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus so invaluable. I mean, they literally reveal answers to the question of what God is like. And so now, um, that said, each week in this series, we've been exploring a story from a life of Jesus and then asking the question, what can this tell us about what God is like? Uh, and, and I'm telling you, in some ways, I've saved the best for last because we get, what we get to talk about today might just be revolutionary insight into what God is like, specifically when it comes to how you practice your faith, and especially if you grew up in church. Uh, and, and so... To begin to show you what I mean, what I want to do is ask you kind of an interesting, maybe a little bit awkward question. It goes like this. Why does God hate sin? Not does God hate sin. The text is pretty clear. God hates sin. But why does God hate sin? Is it simply that it offends him when a human breaks one of the rules that he gave in the Bible? Or is there something else that we need to consider? And fortunately for us, Jesus sort of answered this question in a roundabout way during his time on earth. And, and he did so in a way that not only reframed sin in the minds of his first Jewish followers, but I would argue it can also help out all of us today who aren't from a Jewish background about how to think about the sin in our lives. And Jesus gave this answer one day during a conversation he was having with an expert in the Old Testament Law. Now, as you can imagine, an expert in the Old Testament law would be the guy you didn't want to invite to your birthday party because they were always really intense about the rule following. But anyway, one day, uh, an expert in law approached Jesus and asked him a very important question, at least from the perspective of first century Jews. Here's what he asked Jesus. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And the reason he asked Jesus this question was that, well, he and the other experts in the law had been watching Jesus, and Jesus was, well, he wasn't playing by their rules. And so one day they finally said, okay, we just need to ask him. So the question basically is, Jesus, which of the 613 rules recorded in the Old Testament do you see as most important? And, and, and something to note here, I, I find it fascinating, Jesus didn't answer the question in the way many modern Christians would expect. Like he didn't look back at the expert and say, what do you mean, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're all equally inspired by God, and so they're all equally important. That's not what Jesus said. Instead, and this is huge, he actually answered 
the experts' questions, which, if you think about it, means that in his response, Jesus actually identified the most important commandment in the entire Old Testament. He said it was this. He said, the most important one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. He goes, this is the first and greatest commandment. And so before we go any farther, you need to know that at this point in the conversation, the expert in the law would have wholeheartedly agreed with Jesus. Like to first century Jews, the love of God was without question the first and greatest commandment. So as I imagine it, the expert would have been satisfied with Jesus' answer, maybe even nodding until Jesus said one small word that carried with it almost unimaginable implications. Jesus said, and. And I am telling you, the expert in the law would have immediately thought, and what? Like, Jesus, I asked you for the most important one, and you told me the most important one. You don't get an and, but Jesus had an and, because as it turns out, Jesus had another greatest commandment. And I know if you're like an English major, that drives you nuts because the greatest, there's only one, right? That's why it's ist, not er, it's ist. Think about that later, right? But Jesus had two greatest commandments and he phrased it this way. He started by saying, and the second is like it. In other words, in order to properly answer your question about the greatest one, I have to give you two. And I did a deep dive this week into the original language of this phrase. And as it turns out, the Greek word translated second here means second in sequence, not second in importance. And so when Jesus identified a second commandment that was like the first, he was essentially saying that these two commandments were linked in such a way that the only way to obey the one was to obey the other. And so now that you're curious, what was this mysterious second commandment that Jesus said was like the first? He said it this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, according to Jesus, who came to show us what God is like, someone's love of neighbor was just as important as their love for God. In fact, Jesus taught that someone's love of neighbor was the way that they demonstrated that they loved God. Like said a bit differently, uh, the, the only way that you can tell whether someone truly loves God is if they love their neighbor. And, and this means that according to Jesus, the love of people and not the ability to follow a bunch of religious rules was to be the top priority in the life of someone who sought to love God. God, that's what Jesus taught, like over and over and over again. And by the way, I love how this understanding was repeated and even amplified by Jesus' first disciples. Just one example, John, uh, Jesus' youngest disciple, a few decades after his resurrection, was writing a letter to some early Christians to encourage them in this. And check out what John writes. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In other words, if you have the ability to meet someone's needs and you don't meet it, how can you say that you love God? And then a few verses later, he says this, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God 
whom they have not seen. In other words, John wrote that if someone truly loves God, they will love their neighbor. The one should always give rise to the other. Okay, so now let's jump back into the conversation between Jesus and the expert in the law because after identifying two greatest commandments, Jesus said something that I'm telling you doesn't mean much to us but would have rendered the expert in the law speechless. I mean, this guy had lived his entire life trying to organize his, his, the way of living around all of the rules in the Old Testament. Here's what Jesus said. All the law and the prophets hang on these two greatest commandments. In other words, and again, Jesus was speaking to the expert in the law, every single law recorded in the Old Testament was a context-specific application of what the love of neighbor required. And just let that sink in for a minute. Because if what Jesus said here was true, and around here a whole bunch of us believe that it was, then all of the rules for life that were recorded in the Old Testament were simply situational explanations of what the love of neighbor required. Said a bit differently, according to Jesus, if an ancient Jewish person could have always prioritized the love of their neighbor, if that was the guiding light in their life, they wouldn't even need the rest of the Jewish religious rules. I'm telling you, the expert in the law would have been flabbergasted. Anyway, because this was such a big deal to Jesus, and because it pretty much went against the grain of everything that anyone had ever thought about religion, even Jewish religion in the ancient world, Jesus reiterated this teaching in different ways over and over again in conversations he had with stuffy Jewish religious leaders. In fact, if you're looking for a good time this week, pick one of those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at all the interactions Jesus has with religious leaders who are trying to figure out how this whole thing is supposed to work. Uh, just to get you started, one of my favorite examples was recorded by an early Jesus follower named Mark. Uh, in his account of the life of Jesus, he recorded the following. He said, one Sabbath, and that's the key to understanding what happens next, but one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked by, they began to pick some heads of grain. You're like, why would they do that? Because they were hungry. You know, they didn't have like granola bars, so they made their own or whatever, right? Yeah, and I know we look at this and we're like, okay, what's the big deal? Just some random field, and they pick some heads of grain. Not a problem, but I'm telling you, in first century Israel, picking a head of grain on the Sabbath would have evoked a strong emotional response from the Jewish religious leaders. Because according to their interpretation of one of the religious rules, God forbid his people from picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Mark recorded the tension this way, and you're going to love this next part. He says this, the Pharisees, who by the way were there, isn't that awesome? Like Jesus and disciples are just walking through a field and the Pharisees are like popping up with like binoculars or something. They're always right there. Now they said to Jesus, look, why are they, like your followers, the ones that you know, are supposed to be following you, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Are you endorsing what they're doing? Are you breaking the Sabbath rule? And so again, the Pharisees are watching Jesus at this point because he's not following the rules. And they begin to find him fascinating and then disturbing and then maybe even dangerous. So I think they were actually keeping a list of things that Jesus did so they could kind of pass it up the chain and hopefully get Jesus in trouble. But anyway, when they noticed that Jesus' first disciples weren't honoring their interpretation of one of their rules, in other words, when they noticed that from their perspective they were sinning, 
they asked Jesus why he permitted his disciples to do something they believed was wrong. And, and to be fair, God had told the people of ancient Israel not to work on the Sabbath day, um, and, but, but, and this is where things got complicated, God had not told them specifically what was work. Like he had sort of left it up to them to determine what specifically constituted work. And so somehow through a really long meeting and a bunch of decision trees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had determined that picking a single head of grain on the Sabbath was a sin. Um, anyway, in response to their challenge, Jesus ignored the absurdity of their application of the Sabbath law and seized the moment to make a much broader point that I think has ramifications even for us 2,000 years later. In fact, Jesus leveraged this opportunity to make a statement that has profound implications about how we understand religious rules in general. Here's what Jesus said. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, he looks at these stuffy Jewish religious leaders and he says, guys, guys, you've got it backwards. And that's your problem. See, God didn't create people so that there would be someone to keep his rules. Right? I mean, think about it. It's like in the beginning, before the creation of heaven and earth, God was not up in heaven surrounded by a bunch of angels showing them this amazing list of rules and saying, man, these are so good. You know what we need to do? I should create people so there would be someone to follow them. Right? That, that's not how it worked. And, and it seems ridiculous to us, but I'm telling you, that was how the first century Jewish religious leaders operated. They had elevated the importance of following the rules over the importance of loving the people that God had intended the rules to help. Man, I'm so glad that that never happens today, aren't you? I'm so thankful that followers of Jesus never prioritize their interpretation of a religious rule over loving someone who, according to Jesus, that rule was originally intended to help. Anyway, when you read those accounts of Jesus' life carefully, you, again, you see over and over and over again, Jesus affirmed that if we're going to practice religion as God intended, loving people is to be the priority and not the application of specific Old Testament laws or New Testament laws. And, and, and so I think it's more than fair to say that according to Jesus, who again came to show us what God is like, whenever someone misapplies a religious rule in a way that harms someone else, they aren't applying it correctly. Because again, that law was always intended to benefit People. And by the way, this is why Jesus got so worked up whenever religious leaders in his day would justify their mistreatment of people by leveraging their interpretation of one of God's laws. And, and, and because I just can't help myself, I want to show you one more example of when this happened. One day, a group of Jewish religious leaders approached Jesus and asked him a question that shockingly they didn't think was absurd. So here's what they did one day. The religious leaders come up to Jesus and they say to him, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? In other words, Jesus, um, does a guy need a good reason to get rid of his wife or will pretty much any reason do, right? And here's the thing. This was a conversation that was happening in the Jewish culture in the first century 
because a generation earlier, there were two famous rabbis. One was a little more progressive, we would say. One was a little more conservative. And basically, they were trying to interpret this Old Testament law that Moses had given the people that said a man can divorce his wife as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce, which at the time was a massive step forward, um, but in this case led them to this question which obviously is a horrible question for a number of reasons, but to the point of our talk today, it's the sort of question that you ask when you're more concerned about following a rule than loving someone. And if we're being honest, that's something that many of us maybe unintentionally have done at some point in our lives. And, and here's, here's what I mean. Uh, if you grew up in church like I did, you probably have had a moment or two somewhere when you were growing up, when you asked your Sunday school teacher or your youth pastor whether or not something was a sin. And, and let's be honest, you asked because you wanted to do this something, right? <laughs> like you wanted to do it, but before you did it, you wanted to know if God would be mad at you or make your life more complicated or maybe like rain a lightning bolt down on you if you did it. And so you asked someone who you figured knew the Bible better than you did and see, the assumption behind that question was that God revealed all possible sins in the Bible. And so if something wasn't specifically forbidden by a rule in the Bible, then it must not be a sin. And, and, and I know that sounds good, but I'm telling you, that's not what Jesus taught. I mean, according to Jesus, what's good for people is good. And what's not good for people is sin. And, and by the way, this is why Jesus had absolutely no patience for good people who weren't good to people, like rule-following people who mistreated people. In, in fact, one day he looked at the goodest religious leaders imaginable. I mean, their full-time job was to organize their lives around following the rules. And he looks at these guys and he says the following. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And the word hypocrite means actor, pretender, like you're putting on a religious show. And he gives them an example. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. And I'm reading this going, boy, that's a little specific with the spices, but I get your point, right? In the ancient times, God had said to his people, I want you to give a tenth of whatever comes in back to God, and it'll be redistributed to help people in need. So great. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But he says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Look at this. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, Jesus said, the intent behind God's law is love of neighbor. And so thanks for all the rule following. That's great. But if it's not coming from a heart of love, you're missing the point. If you're giving, the t you know, if you're giving of your mint, cumin, and dill so God won't get you, that's not the heart behind the rule. The heart behind the rule was that you would share out of your abundance with people who had needs. If you're not loving people like you love yourself, you've lost the heart behind all the religious rules. And um, if you'll permit me uh, a brief aside and an honest confession. So I mentioned I grew up in church and um, I am a firstborn, relatively compliant individual. Where are my people at? right? 
yeah, firstborns. We tend to lean a bit that way. But when I reflect back on my early church experience, I had a good church experience, but when I reflect back on my church experience, it was all about following religious rules and not so much about loving people. Like I wasn't going out of my way not to love people, but when I thought about my walk with Jesus, it was all about how am I doing following the rules. And, and I think that was the case because somewhere along the line, I picked up this idea that if I kept the rules and therefore avoided sin, then God would bless me. And if my friend somehow didn't or couldn't keep all the rules, well, that was kind of between him and, and God. And so consequently, my faith was initially marked by the pursuit of things like discipline and fidelity and morality and honesty. And I know that sounds good. You're like, well, who wouldn't want a teenager that prioritize those things, right? But it sounds good, at least until you realize that that approach to religion, you know, doesn't really concern itself that much with how other people are treated. In other words, mine was a very self-centered approach to faith. And, you know, if I'm honest, that approach kind of worked for me until the day, and you're going to love this, that I actually started reading the accounts of Jesus' life. And as I read the accounts of Jesus' life, repeatedly, I recognized something, and initially it bothered me a lot. I, my approach to religion needed to change or to evolve. And what's weird is those who knew me best at that time would tell you that over the next few years, because this didn't happen overnight for me, it wasn't like a switch that flipped, but over the next few years, I didn't become liberal, but I did become a little more compassionate and a lot more graceful and a lot less judgmental. You know, dare I say, I became a little bit more like Jesus. And so that said, I want to bring us back to the question that I asked at the start of this talk. Like, according to Jesus, why does God hate sin? And I would argue that now, based on my decades-long study of Jesus, I, I, two incredibly simple suggestions to you in answer to this question. And the first one goes like this. God hates it when you sin. And I'll put it personally, so it's, I'm here with you. You know, God hates it when you or I sin because sin hurts other people. I know that's like not very profound. You're like, oh, I gotta write that down. You don't even need to write it down, right? It's just right there. Um, it's super easy to understand. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to avoid sin in your life, simply don't treat anyone in a way that's not good for them. God loves them and wants the best for them. And so whenever you or I do something that hurts another person, even if it's legal, and even if it isn't specifically prohibited in the Bible, it's sin. So that's the first one. And the second one is actually kind of like it. It goes like this. God hates it when you or I sin because sin hurts us. Like our sin hurts us. And so God hates it when we sin because he loves us and he wants the best for us too. And so whenever we do something that's not good for us, it's sin. See, God isn't just concerned about how we treat others. He's concerned about how we treat ourselves, like our bodies, our futures, our character, our reputations, really anything that has to do with us. Because again, God loves people. And so God loves 
us. And, and so that said, I need to ask you one more question. It goes like this. Are you currently harming yourself or others? In other words, based on Jesus' definition of sin, are you sinning? Like maybe, maybe for you it's a habit that's chipping away at your sense of self-control, something you just keep going back to and you know it's not good for you. Maybe it's like a relationship that if the people who love you and who depend on you found out about would harm their confidence in you. Or maybe it's like a behavior that's eroding your self-respect. Like initially it wasn't a big deal, but now it's kind of become a big deal because you no longer like who you see when you look in the mirror. Like whatever the specifics, whatever came to your mind, you're not going to have to dig deep. Most of us don't have to dig deep for this, but would you be willing to acknowledge that reality to yourself today? Like I'm living out of tune with the way God would have me live and I know it. And, and maybe for you, another step is to pull in a trusted friend. Like if it's a habit that's toxic and you know it's bad, you find a trusted friend who you know is on your side and you say, hey, um, I, I, this is a part of my past. I, this can't be a part of my future. And I don't think I'm strong enough to do this without some accountability. Will you walk with me and will you encourage me in this? So would you acknowledge it to yourself today? Maybe would you, would you consider pulling in a trusted friend? And to the end that, you would accept Jesus' invitation to follow him and to begin to walk away from it. The, the, word, the biblical word is repent. And it's an ancient concept, but to repent is to actually return to the way God intended for you to live. So it's to turn away from your sin, but to return to the path that God has for you. And so whatever your thing is, I would just implore you to go after it. Not, not because if you don't, God's gonna get you but because sin is going to hurt you and continue to hurt you if you don't. In fact, for a lot of us, if we're honest, sin is already hurting us. And it has the potential to hurt the people who love us the most. So whatever it is, I would just encourage you, walk away from it. Get some help. Do what you know you need to do. Because I'm telling you, and this is today's answer to the question of what God is like. He hates sin because sin hurts people. And he hates sin because he loves people. Okay, so now, um, before we close our time together today, um, we have an incredible opportunity to take communion together. And it's, a, it's an appropriate thing to do at the end of a talk about sin because Jesus came to free us from the punishment of sin and to open a way for us to be with our Heavenly Father. And so um, a chance to come and to remember his body that was broken and his blood that was spilled. And uh, also just a few housekeeping notes. If you're new around here, um, you should know that um, you don't need to be a member here at Keystone to participate in communion. Uh, we don't have any members. And so if, if you had to be a member, it'd be really awkward. The band would play, no one would come. It'd be super weird, right? But anyway, um, we only ask that you have made a commitment to follow Jesus and that he is the Lord of your life and that his blood covers your sins. You've received that from him. And then uh, you're welcome to come. If you're here and you have children with you, uh, we always say that we trust that a parent knows more about their faith journey than any church ever could. And so if you're here and you have a, 
a son or daughter with you and they're ready and you know they're ready, please um, bring them with you up to the front. Also, if you're here and you're exploring faith again for the first time in a very long time and you're like, the, th- the, the whole thinking that way about sin, just you're like, I need a minute. Um, if that's you and you're not ready to place your faith in Jesus, then please just take a pass. We're just so honored that you're here. You're one of the reasons this place exists. And so we're just honored that you're with us today. Uh, but for the rest of us, um, in just a moment, the guys are going to come. They're going to play a song, give you a little space just to consider maybe what you need to walk away from and then come to the front and to remember what Jesus did for you and to remember how much he loves you. And so let's, uh, we'll do this now and then I'll return and I'll close our time in prayer.
joined us today and um, you just need to talk to someone. We have some friends that will be under the screen to your left that would love to meet with you and listen and maybe offer a prayer uh, to encourage you. And uh, for the rest of us, we close our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful, incredible, wonderful promise that because of the blood of Jesus, we can stand clean before you, that sin doesn't control what happens to us when we exit this life. Thank you as well for the invitation to turn from sin. Sin doesn't have to control us in this life anymore either. And, and so this week as we kind of wrestle down what to do with what we've heard and maybe what you brought to our hearts, um, I pray that a whole bunch of us would make decisions to repent, maybe for the first time in a long time, that we would return to the way of Jesus. And as we do, I pray that the light of your love would shine through us to our friends, to our family, to our community. We desire to be your people in this world. And so thank you. We bless you. We celebrate you. We love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior and Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. If you're interested in the uh, turkey meeting, it'll be right upstairs in the office in about five minutes.